0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, hosted on May 10th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. And I've just returned from Mania, a week-long series of lectures about Apple products that took place aboard a cruise ship that sailed from New York City to Bermuda and back. One of the lecturers was the ubiquitous David Pogue, author of The Many Missing Manuals and tech columnist for The New York Times. We talked on May 8th in my cabin on the Holland America ship, the Veendam, somewhere in the Atlantic. For anybody who is unfamiliar with you, well, they can't possibly be listening to this podcast. They wouldn't, <laughs> they wouldn't have the technology. But, um, tell us how many missing manuals have, have there been already and how do you write a missing manual? One would think you'd have to be one of the creators of the uh, piece of equipment or the software to write the manual. So how do you get in there and, and, you know, back uh, engineer things?
1: Yeah, you, you would think. So I started the series in 1999 and now there are something like 130 titles. I didn't write all of them. A few years ago, I sold the whole thing to the company that was doing the publishing to O'Reilly because they wanted to step up the number of subjects that that I couldn't do on my own. At one point I I was doing 11 a year and it was killing me. So, um, I do maybe half of them, maybe even less now. I I think I personally have written maybe 40 of them, something like that. Um, and it's funny about the, the missing manuals because of course they eliminated manuals in the first place to save a buck, you know, a buck a box. That's what the book would cost them. And their studies showed the software companies' study show that people aren't really reading manuals anyway, so it's just a wasted dollar, as far as they were concerned. Um, so nowadays, I literally have heard from inside software companies that they, when are, when they sit down to decide whether or not to do a manual for their software product, someone will inevitably say, "You know what? pogue will do one. Let's just leave it out." Um, so how do I do it? Well. Um, it's just a lot of clicking and pointing. You know, I read what online help they gave me. I read what everyone's saying online. I troll the chat room, the chat boards. Um, you know, one of the hallmarks of these books are tips and tricks, and um, so th- those. When I find something like that, it, it really, uh, really sets me off. And I, I, and for that, you really just got to hang out online. I mean, a lot of this information is available from other sources. You can find most of this stuff online, just the way I do. I think the service that I bring is being the curator of it, like presenting it in a, in a funny, logical, authoritative way um, so as not to waste your time. Um, that's, that's one of the dumbest criticisms computer books get on the Amazon reviews is like, all this information is online. Well, fine. You can spend 12 hours trying to find it that way, or you can get it one concise, amusing nugget in a
0: well-done book. But anyway, so that's how they came to be. And again, you've done about 40 of them personally at this point. Mm-hmm. And you're still cranking one out. You write one about every couple of months then.
1: That's right. I'm, I'm keeping three of them alive that I personally do. That's Windows, iPhone, and Mac OS X. And I'll probably keep those alive for years because, um, <laughs> frankly, those are the cash cows. Um, and then um, there are some others that I sort of edit and am the godfather of. But
0: three big ones a year. And other things you have going. You've got the CNBC, the CBS Sunday Morning, the Times column, of course. Um, the,
1: the video with CNBC appears every Thursday at about 1.40 p.m., and, the, and a few people see that, but then they go onto the web and that's where people really see them. So it's on iTunes and YouTube and, and JetBlue that more people recognize me from JetBlue
0: than from any other source. Like you're the guy from the seat back in front. Of exactly.
1: Me. One guy corralled me in a, a conference, in California. He's like, you, <laughs> what did I do? And he goes, the JetBlue flight was stuck on channel one. I had to look at your mug for six hours. Uh, funny, <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, so, so that, uh, and, and I write and direct and cast and produce those, um, CNBC sends a, a cameraman and a producer every Tuesday up to my house in Connecticut and we shoot the thing and then they edit it and produce it. And they do just a better and better job every, every year goes by. Um, you know, humor is not typically CNBC strong suit. You know, they, they are a financial news network. Um, but they, they really have sort of started to get these things and do a great job. And then uh, the Times column is every Thursday, so I usually turn that in, turn that column in on Monday. And there's another Times column that goes out by email on a different subject, and that goes out on Thursday also. Usually rate that Wednesday. Um, and then I do about 40 or 50 speaking engagements a year, and that goes on constantly. And then you know, now I'm I'm absolutely dying because I'm uh, I'm hosting this. 4 hour PBS Nova miniseries that's going to air in November it's four 1 hour episodes and it's a huge grant from the National Science Foundation to to underwrite this thing and so they're sparing no expense we're literally jetting all over the world to report on this subject which is material science a very cool uh blossoming area of science that gets no love but i mean people don't even know what's happening but but there it's 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 110 days of filming this thing. It's, it's, it's unbelievable amount of work and travel, but just so, so, so cool. I, and and they're trying to make it as Nova does. They're trying to make it very visual and very exciting to watch and make the science come alive. So they've had me hang glide. They had me ride in a demolition derby race in the car, which of course are like 1970s automobiles with no seatbelts. Um, they had me land on a nuclear aircraft carrier during Navy training exercises, um, I swam with sharks 40 feet, 45 feet down um, and actually handled one uh, because uh, we were doing a segment on man-made materials based on shark skin. Um, I milked a goat. This is unbelievable. There's, there's a guy in Wyoming who has bred transgenic goats that give spider silk milk. And the reason is that spider silk by weight is five times as strong as steel. So, Man, if they could make bridges and cables and stuff out of this, they would last a lot longer and be a lot tougher, but the spiders are really, really slow. So this guy figured if I can get goats to give those proteins in their milk and have whole herds of them, uh, we could make this stuff a lot faster. So he's really doing it, and we made spider silk. I, I milked the goat, and then uh, he ran it through a chemical process, and it came out the other side as thread, and really, really... Tough stuff. And the goats, the goats have no clue. They're, they're just goats. I would hope so.
0: <laughs> Basically, you just take a, the gene for the, uh, the silk protein and you insert it into the goat genome and then they start making it. And then one of the ways to get at it is through the milk. You could probably get it from other cells as well, but the milk is really convenient.
1: That's true. I think he was also talking about breeding some plants to give this, the protein to. I forgot which one it was, but, um, The goats are make make better television,
0: (laughs) right? They're they're very telegenic and uh, And transgenic and transgenic, (laughs) and so that's going to air in November. Mm -hmm. It's called
1: making stuff, and there's four episodes: making stuff stronger, making stuff cleaner, making stuff smaller, and making stuff smarter. Which is about like self healing materials and materials that smart materials materials that respond to their environment. So there are materials that re- react to electricity, to heat, to color, even to smell. So really
0: wild stuff. And you're uh, welcome to the family. You're, you're actually working for Scientific American as well.
1: Indeed, I am. Just starting a column that will
0: uh, bring a little consumer tech to those pages. Which uh, many of us at the magazine could really use because I know that a lot of us actually do buy the missing manuals. So we can figure out how to work the stuff that we have in the office and at home.
1: Well, I, I thank you on behalf of the college fund. That's very generous. You're talking about for your three kids. <laughs> exactly. Right.
0: So uh, I think people might be interested in your background, which is a little bit unusual for somebody who's wound up where you have wound up. You have a Broadway
1: theater background. That's correct. I spent ten years conducting shows, conducting musicals, and arranging them, and playing the piano in pit orchestras, teaching voice lessons. Yeah, I was I was a music theater nerd from the time I was a kid. I, I wrote musicals for the local church groups and for the local schools. And in college, I wrote a musical a year, and that was always my ambition to write shows. So,
0: and uh, some of the shows that some of the Broadway shows people might actually have seen.
1: Uh, very unlikely. got there quick. Most of, yeah, most of mine were gigantic flops. I worked on Carrie, which was at the time the most expensive musical in history. It was 10 million bucks based on the Stephen King novel, and it closed in one night. Um, I worked for three years on a Cy Coleman show called Welcome to the Club. Cy Coleman had had seven consecutive Broadway hits, you know, City of Angels and Sweet Charity, and and this one lasted six nights. Um, I worked as an assistant on Kiss of the Spider Woman, that one people might have heard of. Um, so, but, but even that I worked on the, the out of town tryout, which was a flop. And then they took it and retooled it for two years and brought it back and it was a big hit. But I, I I like to think that it wasn't because I was involved that these were all flops, (laughs) but there is that
0: possibility. Is there anything specific? I mean, there are generalities always between fields that you can point to is, is something you learn from one thing and you can apply somewhere else. But can you think of anything specific that you got from your years of music and from uh, orchestration and conducting that actually now come into play with what you do? I mean, there's the performance aspect, obviously.
1: Right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's an incredible question. Um, it, I, I think there are so many computer people who are also musicians and so many doctors who are musicians, so many scientists who are also musicians. And I think it's not an accident. I think it's because both of these disciplines are, if you really think about it, sort of creative, but very rule based. So there's this set of unchanging rules about rhythm and harmony and what works together in music. And yet music is considered very creative. And the same thing with tech or programming or, or software, web design, whatever, whatever you want, or, or medicine. Um, there's some very strict rules and yet you're free to operate within them in a creative way. So I think they sort of have, have those similarities. And in terms of my own career, um, there's a, uh, I don't want to sound self-aggrandizing, but people are always surprised to know how collaborative I am. You know, I'm not, I'm not just this solo, uh, columnist in an attic. Um, and I, I thrive on these TV jobs, for example, because it's just so much fun to work on something together, And that's because I miss the theater so much. The, the two careers are 100% complementary, right? So writing is incredibly solitary, but you have 100% control. And then, you know, theater is very social, very collaborative, but you have very little control. It's all, you know, the, the group pulling together. And so I really sort of miss the theater, and that's that's what TV is doing for me now
0: position or momentum, but not both. That's right.
1: The (laughs) Heisenberg
0: uncertainty principle of of life. Well put. What has surprised you as, for example, Twitter, has that come out of nowhere and surprised you? I mean, you're somebody who, who is swimming in current technology. So what out there has really come along and just taken you by surprise?
1: Yeah, well, what Twitter did, Twitter did hit me between the eyes. That's a, that was a famous misfire on my part. I, Everyone said, are you on Twitter? Are you doing Twitter? Are you going to write about Twitter? And I just, I mean, there's a thousands of these things, you know, Fark and Foursquare. I mean, just a thousand things come and go. And I really wasn't tuned in. And interestingly, the, the one, the way I got involved was somebody came up to me on the street and said, Hey, Pogue, love you on Twitter. And I wasn't on Twitter. So I thought that's a little peculiar. It turns out I was being impersonated on Twitter.
0: A Pogue yeah,
1: this guy signed up for the name David Pogue and had been tweeting as me for six months. Wow. I mean, he wasn't like saying stupid stuff. He was saying stuff that I would actually do. Mm-hmm. Like he would find out when I was going to give a talk and say, "On my way to Pittsburgh," you know. And it was really weird. It, was, it turned out it was the uh, the ex husband of a former office assistant of mine. I, wow. I still don't know why. Um, and I confronted him. He's like, "Ah, oh, dude, I'll give you the password if you want." <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks, pal. Um, he didn't really see what the big deal was, but anyway, so I I shut down that account. I started a new one as just Pogue, and I, I dipped my toe in the water. And then,
0: how do they verify the celebrity? Which I know they do.
1: They now do. Yeah, there's. I I don't know. I think you have to have people vouch for you. It happened without my doing. All of a sudden, this verified badge appeared on my right. account one day. I, okay. I don't don't know how how they That's do it. That's interesting. Yeah, somebody should do a column on that. So anyone here write a technology column? <laughs> um, but but anyway, so th- so I got started in Twitter when I was on a judging panel for a technology grant program, and somebody said, okay, here's pro- proposal number fifty three. These guys want to make a a van for for poor people in sub Saharan Africa who have no eye care, and it'll make it'll be able to make glasses on the spot for people who've never had glasses. And oh great, and I was like, well wait a minute, didn't someone do this? before, and everyone's like sort of scratching their heads and looking around. And we have 50 more proposals to get through. So this guy sitting, sitting next to me opens his laptop and goes, I'll just ask on Twitter, you know. Uh, yeah, UNICEF 2001, Bausch and Lohm 2003. Like, how could he do that? You know, he didn't send out an email blast. He didn't make a phone call. He didn't put up a web page. He did something that got instant targeted perfect answers in 15 seconds. And so that's when I thought, whoa, Twitter does something nothing else can do and and I started using it for that too. I started asking questions and and you know, seeking participants and stuff like that. So uh that's that's what opened my eyes. But so that that one really really hit me between the eyes. It's really something entirely new that doesn't duplicate any other channel.
0: So if you were going to guess, you know, this is a hackney journalist question, but you know, 5 years from now, or would you say I can't even imagine what I would guess, what I'll be using on a daily basis, what I'll be interacting with.
1: Yeah, no, you, you always look like an idiot when you try to predict consumer technology's future. You know, Bill Gates, uh, 640K of RAM ought to be enough for anyone, which he said in 1981, or turns out he didn't. I actually researched that. So he didn't stop emailing that, please. He never really said that. But anyway, um, but one thing that I have noticed in in years and years of writing about consumer tech is that in general, things don't ever replace things. Everyone says, oh, this is the iPhone killer. This is the radio killer. And no, it never is. You know, TV did not kill radio. Satellite radio did not kill terrestrial radio. Um, you know, the iPod did not replace, you know, CDs entirely. Um, so things just tend to add on. And,
0: and transform the role of the previous technology. That's right. Like that's old right. radio used to be mostly entertainment. Now it's mostly news.
1: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So that, so that can happen, but, but things don't go. So everyone's like, Oh, is Twitter a flash in the pan? Is Facebook going to be gone in five years? No, of course not. They will, they will evolve into their niches and they will be there and there will be a thousand other things. I mean, the one thing you can certainly say is that the era of a common cultural, um, touchstone, uh, experience like, Oh, did you see Lucy last night at eight o'clock on Thursday on CBS? Well, of course not. That's gone. You know, Everything is random access. Television shows, random access. Movies, music, radio, everything is books. Is I want it on demand right now, and it's not going to be in sync with anybody else. So that that common cultural thing is, is almost gone now.
0: But the common cultural experience of everybody doing the same general thing seems to still exist. I mean, you ride the subways in New York, and everybody has their iPhone or Android or some other smartphone out and is interacting with it and and sometimes people interact with each other that way as well but they're interacting you know off site with other people or reading something they downloaded that morning to read while they were underground on the subway so there's some kind of of common experience still going on it's just not the the exact same feed coming into everybody's brain
1: that's it yeah the material itself You know, there's no longer going to be, you know, the New York Times is the paper and there's no longer going to be, you know, the TV show that everybody saw last night. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So everything's becoming more splintered in terms of the feeds. But sure, the the channels come and go and coalesce and break apart again in terms of, oh, it's Twitter, oh, it's text messaging, whatever. Um, but in general, that, that artistic creation is no longer going to be something that everybody's seen. Even movies. Right now, movies is the last thing we have oh did you see that movie um and that's because hollywood still controls this relatively small number of movies that come out but as we're quickly discovering there's absolutely no reason for that anymore anyone can make a movie anyone should make a movie and pretty soon the channels will catch up so that uh, a brilliant a- amateur made movie will be just as watched and highly revered as you know a professionally slickly hollywood produced movie
0: Yeah, especially if you're content to watch it on, for example, your, your iPhone or iTouch, then your, your own standards of what kind of quality you're going to accept are different from when you pay money to go into a big theater.
1: Right, right. That's true. It's hilarious, isn't it? Watching the movie industry try to keep a step ahead of, a step ahead of our home theaters. This, this 3D TV thing just cracked me the heck up. I'm like, Okay, (laughs) everyone was getting big screens with fantastic surround sound systems in their homes and the movie industry was frantic like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that was why they used to come to the theater, what are we gonna do? I got it, make everything 3D! And that'll keep everybody in the theaters. No, now everyone's getting three Ds
0: TVs at home too. So they've even lost that ace in the hole. Well, have you seen Casablanca in three D? <laughs> it's still not in color, but no, I'm kidding. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so, um, at the risk of hearing endorsements, I mean, what what do you personally use? What what kind of hardware and and packages do you really? Find the most satisfying to use.
1: Um, Well, you know, I spend my life in Microsoft Word. You know, writing, 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 writing. And although I have to say, the one really unusual thing about me is I have to write so much. I didn't even mention the daily blog. I didn't even mention my children's novel, which just came out. And uh, but so I have evolved the system of text expansion macros, and I must have four hundred of them. In other words. Common words like you, I just type the letter Y and it puts you. And computer, I just do CR. And camera, I just do CA and and so on. So I have hundreds and hundreds of these, including phrases, sentences, whole emails that I, I email common responses to people who ask the same question over and over. Um, just a couple of keystrokes. So when, when I type on someone else's computer, <laughs> I look like a brain damaged person because I'm just typing pieces of words and nothing's coming out. Uh, but anyway, so I, I do use uh, type expansion software. I use a lot of macros to to launch programs, and you know I live in Photoshop, and and uh, I use uh, Aperture and i iPhoto for pictures, and um, I do video editing in Final Cut. Um, I, 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 my life is organized around this obscure calendar program called BusyCal, which is a A networkable, webbable calendar program, so that my wife and everyone else in the family sees the same sets of appointments, color coded, uh, that I have. And if anyone makes a change, it's relayed through the web and broadcast to everybody else's computers and phones. I I personally don't know how families exist without a system like that. I mean, people must have you know a big paper calendar on their refrigerator, but it. It doesn't work when you travel as much or are as busy as much as we are. Any
0: music composition software?
1: Um, no, um, I used to be really big. I, I wrote the manuals, in fact, for a program called Finale, this, this professional sheet music program that's still very popular. Um, but I don't, I just don't do enough of that. I do, um, I do still perform a lot at the piano. At the end of every talk, I do song parodies about the tech business that sort of wrap up the talk, like, Bill Gates, I write the code that makes the whole world run. I'm getting royalties from everyone. You know, goofy things like that. So that's the only real performing I do anymore. Um, and I, none of that requires music software.
0: What What's the actual next missing manual that's going to get the stance?
1: Well, the, the next one will be about the, the, uh, an update to the iPhone book, uh, which will presumably be out June or July when the new iPhone comes
0: out. So the new iPhone's going to come out. Will you have a an actual unit prior to its public release that you can play with?
1: Usually uh, the, the main tech reviewers, rather the tech reviewers for the main papers, USA Today, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, get it a
0: week in advance. So you'll have one week with it, and hopefully you'll have that manuscript done in time for it to get rolled out as soon as possible, obviously, once the unit comes out. Yeah,
1: as soon as possible. I mean, it won't be, you know, before the phone is out, you know, a week is, is too quick, but you know, I'll, I'll use, I'll, I'll get it done as quick as I can,
0: quickly as I can. And, uh, so when is teleportation going to come so you can be <laughs> even more efficient?
1: I don't know, dude. I like that. Those plane rides. That's when I get the most uninterrupted work time. I mean, that's like a truly beautiful work time I get off and I, have answered a thousand emails and gotten the next four blog posts done.
0: david polk's column in scientific american is currently scheduled for an october debut and his children's book is called abby carnelia's one and only magical power there are more macmania cruises scheduled they're organized by insight cruises which also does the Bright Horizon series of trips with Scientific American that you may have seen advertised in the pages of the magazine. I've been a speaker on a couple of those cruises, but was purely an audience member for Macmania. For info on Macmania or Scientific American cruises, go to insightcruises.com. I'll post more from last week's voyage later this week. Now it's time to play Totally bocus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a new analysis shows that listening to Mozart really does give high school kids a slight advantage on the math section of the SAT. Story two, a food truck in Central Park will offer a $1 discount on smoothies if you supply the power for the blender by riding an exercise bike. Story 3, a new free iPhone app will allow you to get a glimpse of what you would have looked like as a Neanderthal, a Hobbit, or Homo heidelbergensis, another early human species. And Story 4, U.S. carbon emissions fell a record 7% in 2009. And time's up. Story four is true. U.S. carbon emissions did drop by a record 7% last year. Unfortunately, a lot of the drop was related to the recession. When the economy gets going full steam ahead, emissions will rise again without further action on efficiency and alternative fuels. Story three is true. The iPhone app that allows you to take a photo of yourself or others and convert it to an image of an early human is called Meandertal. And it's free, and it's the Smithsonian Institution's first mobile app. And story two is true. The exercise bikes will power the blenders that make the smoothies in the truck just across from the American Museum of Natural History in Central Park in Manhattan's Upper West Side. Those smoothies will be 5 bucks for the non-cyclists, $4 if you're pedaling. The food truck also has solar panels and runs on cooking oil. All of which means that story one about cognitive enhancement through listening to Mozart is totally bogus. The notion that Mozart made you smarter goes back to a 1993 report in the journal Nature that has been severely questioned many times. The latest research is a meta-analysis that looked at some 40 other studies with a total of about 3,000 subjects. It appears in the journal Intelligence. Researcher Jakob Piechnig said, I recommend listening to Mozart to everyone, but it will not meet expectations of boosting cognitive abilities. Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read our in-depth reports on the BP Gulf oil disaster and on the coming smart grid, if we're smart enough. Follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mersky. Thanks for clicking on us.